Hanukon. 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 You're listening to Hanukon Podcast, highlighting citizen Potawatomi Nation issues, members, and more. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Just search Hanukon Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Paige Willett. Today, we're taking a look at the history of Native Americans and infectious disease, how the CPN Human Resources Department has adapted during the coronavirus pandemic, and a new United States Department of Agriculture program helping get food to tribal members in Kansas. Culture, warfare, and assimilation all play significant parts in the history of Native Americans and infectious disease spanning from the 1600s to present day. Scarce medical records among Native Americans prior to Europeans' arrival makes it difficult to know the severity of communicable illnesses before European contact. However, Citizen Potawatomi Nation Cultural Heritage Center Director Dr. Kelly Mosteller says we know other factors that give us clues. Settlement patterns were dispersed enough that, you know, traveling between one location and another, you just didn't have a whole lot of sick people who were infectious and feeling well traveling back and forth because it wasn't like everybody was bunched up there together. However, those settlement patterns changed with new technology and economic ideologies. The Potawatomi fought the Iroquois for control of land in the Great Lakes region, eventually settling in Wisconsin in the early 1600s, which is where CHC curator Blake Norton says they made first contact. And them, along with other refugee individuals, um, as well as ancestral tribes, met with the first European to meet with him named Jean Nicolet in 1634. Um, he records in his travels that he met with upwards of five to four to 5,000 people, um, specifically the Ho-Chunk, given that that was their ancestral area. The Potawatomi likely lived among the people of the Ho-Chunk Nation at the time. Other historians' records indicate their population reached upwards of 25,000. Throughout the next 20 years, as more French-Canadian fur traders arrived around Green Bay, Potawatomi and other indigenous groups established trading posts and larger communities, often up to 10,000 people. They created deeper relationships with Europeans by the 1650s. But at this point, when traders and things like that become more motivated to come back to the area and trade with these groups, they note that the Ho-Chunks at this time have been reduced to around 500 people as well as other ancestral peoples in those areas, specifically due to smallpox. And Courier Du Bois and other people who were coming into that region over that 20-year period. So you can see the tremendous effects of this. European forces also used smallpox as a biological weapon against Native Americans in the Great Lakes region, both during Pontiac's War and the American Revolutionary War. In early spring 1763, British forces used Fort Pitt in Pennsylvania as a makeshift hospital for troops and tradespeople during a large smallpox outbreak. Only a few months later, Commander-in-Chief Jeffrey Amherst and Colonel Henry Bouquet presented tribes with infected hospital linens as false gifts of peace during the siege of Fort Pitt at the beginning of Pontiac's War, which Norton says was devastating. Native populations in the area are in the tens of thousands that were affected by this, some estimates reaching up to 100,000 people who were either infected or infected and died from this during these years of Pontiac's war and about five to 10 years afterwards. 
Historians allege that British forces used smallpox as biological weapons again during the Revolutionary War in the 1770s to weaken American forces. Within 10 years, it spread between traders and tribes along the upper Mississippi River, resulting in a potential 95 percent infection rate among Native Americans who visited posts in the area. This type of warfare had a psychological effect as well, according to Norton. To think that there's a power that you know, comes in these huge numbers and wields these incredible weapons, but now they're able to, you know, tap into their spirituality and their gods and be able to create these infectious diseases that affect everybody. Man, that's a, that's a morale killer. Dr. Mosteller described those same psychological effects on the settler side as well. Not only did the native communities think that this might be a spiritual power, but the Europeans thought that God was making the natives sick and not them because he wanted them to take over. You know, like they were using it, they were using a spiritual justification. More than 50 years later, the Potawatomi Trail of Death killed more than 40 people during the two-month forced removal from Indiana to Kansas in 1838. The mortality rate climbed due to the lack of rest, water, and proper nutrition, which all negatively influenced the refugees' immune systems. Children with cholera and typhoid compromised a significant portion of the deaths. After arriving in Kansas, more and more people relocated to the area, such as missionaries, tradespeople, and military. Another cholera outbreak killed dozens of Potawatomi during the first winter in their new home. Shortly thereafter, diseases began coming in waves and seasons due to the changes in community movement Dr. Mosteller alluded to earlier. As you started to have contact with people where there was a lot of interaction, you're moving between one village and the other regularly, um, people are settling in between places where there were maybe two villages, now there's people settled in between those locations. The ability to just sort of keep that transmission chain alive increases and, and increases. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Native American boarding schools aimed to assimilate young generations of tribal members. Students left their families and moved across the country to live in dorms and bunkers, forced to do manual labor without adequate hygiene facilities. Ultimately, an ideal situation for infections to spread. The high mortality rate led to mass graves at many schools, some of which are still being uncovered today. To think about, you know, when we're talking about the psychological aspect of how many parents had their children taken away, and they just never, they never came back and they never learned why. That's a real legacy of the trauma of residential schools and boarding schools. Fast forwarding to the present, community-oriented indigenous cultures still revolve around time together, eating, participating in ceremonies, and caring for one another. COVID-19 and other diseases with prolonged incubation periods force participation in those group practices to dwindle. A particularly painful challenge of this is that in a lot of Native communities, our ways of healing ourselves, whether it be sweat lodges or whether it be other healing ceremonies, require the community to come together and to be able to do ceremony for this person. And that togetherness and that ability to practice traditional ceremonies or traditional healing practices that were outlawed for so long, that has been a real um, source of comfort and strength for, I think, modern Native peoples.
According to a U.S. Census Bureau report from 2012, more than 10 percent of Native American households are multi-generational, compared to less than 4 percent for non-Hispanic whites. In 2020, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention labeled those 65 and older a high-risk segment of the population for COVID-19 and advised quarantining to slow transmission rates. Right now, the, we have to stay so far away from them and leave them isolated. And in a lot of ways, that's just, it's so counter to the deeply ingrained teachings of you keep your elders with you, you keep them close, you check on them, you make sure they have what they need, you prepare, you know. but that right now can be the biggest risk and to leave them isolated is also a risk. Some reservations allow for ample conditions for the spread of viruses and bacterial infections, including government-funded living quarters built close together and restricted access to necessities such as running water. In May 2020, the Navajo Nation, primarily in Arizona, had the nation's highest COVID-19 infection rate per capita in the U.S. Doctors Without Borders sent nine specialists to the reservation. It was the first time the organization dispatched units within the United States. Modern struggles with infectious disease, as seen at the Navajo Nation and other tribes in the U.S., ensure the legacy continues for generations to come across Indian country. However, CPN's robust efforts to mitigate COVID-19 spread focus on the safety of tribal members, staff, and healthcare workers. Find more information at cpn.news backslash COVID-19. While Americans quarantined this spring due to the coronavirus, agricultural producers found themselves with enormous surpluses of food typically used by restaurants, event venues, and other closed businesses. The United States Department of Agriculture began the $1.4 billion Farmers to Families Food Box Program in April as part of the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program to get some of those surpluses to citizens. Citizen Potawatomi Nation District 4 legislator John Bursaw organized the tribe's participation as a local branch to help distribute that food to Potawatomi throughout northeastern Kansas. Tracy Kinderconnect, a CPN RN in Rossville, worked alongside him. She has experience on these types of projects and helped plan and organize the distribution. You know, we've all seen the news reports and the pictures of farmers dumping milk and plowing their vegetable farms under and all of that. So that's what this program is all about, is helping those farmers and individuals out, plus helping our tribal members out. So it's just a big program for all of America. Each week, 300 distribution centers across the country give boxes filled with produce, dairy, and meat to nonprofits and other community entities to give to citizens. Bursaw, as well as CPN staff and volunteers, handed them out for the first time at the beginning of June. In the produce box, there was like three potatoes, three apples, two tomatoes, there was a couple of oranges, zucchini, and a... Uh, bag of carrots and two onions. <laughs> so it was an assortment, but yeah, it's a, it's a staple you know, that people need. 
The broader Rossville community came together to make District 4's participation possible. Mike Schinkel, the director of food services at the Topeka Rescue Mission, contacted Bursaw about the opportunity at the end of May. The tribal legislator met with KinderConnect and other CPN staff to ask their opinion on the nation's involvement. They all supported the idea and prepared for a trial run in less than a week. Bursaw and KinderConnect arranged to rent a refrigerated truck to haul the food from Topeka to Rossville, which remains the single cost of the operation. And we bring that um, food out here to Rossville, which is about 25 miles from the rescue mission to our parking lot. And we um, will start uh, distributing that to the tribal members and whoever has signed up for it. They'll be coming to the parking lot to pick up their boxes. Lynette Hudson, wife of tribal member Kevin Hudson, gathered a dozen local 4-Hers to volunteer for the first distribution day. The team handed out 76 produce boxes and the number quickly rose by word of mouth to more than 100 by the end of the week. The program serves seven counties around Topeka, home to an estimated 400 to 500 CPN families. KinderConnect and her co-worker CNA Sharon Long also take boxes to the elders in tribal housing in Rossville, as well as those they see during home care visits. With this pandemic, they're finding out that we can provide for our own people, you know, the United States, that the product is here. We just have to get it distributed out to the people somehow. So we don't have to buy internationally or ship out, you know. We, we can sustain ourselves here if we want to. The Farmers to Families program is free and open to all CPN members in the Topeka and Rossville areas with no eligibility requirements. The program will continue through the end of August with pickup on Thursdays at the CPN Community Center at 806 Nishnabe Trail, Rossville, Kansas, 66533. Boxes must be requested by Tuesday at 4.30 p.m. each week by calling 785-584-6171 or emailing tkinderconnect at potawatomi.org. That's T-K-I-N-D-E-R-K-N-E-C-H-T at potawatomi.org. CPN Human Resources has been one of the departments most affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, trying to keep employees at work and safe. They've also been helping staff at all of the tribe's departments and enterprises with a wide variety of ongoing issues due to the pandemic. HR Director Richard Brown discusses the changes and new protocols. Well, for one thing, uh, we're looking at all the ways that uh, we can, as an employer, uh, keep 2,500 staff safe and and healthy. Uh, not only do we have to worry about that 2,500 staff, but we worry about their families, the community as a whole. And so we've taken some measures through policy, basically, to ensure that uh, we are doing everything we need to do to stay safe, uh, from cleaning to you know, doing a lot of these types of things, Zoom meetings and handling all the business we can 
from an electronic standpoint, technical standpoint, and having a lot less meetings in person. So um, one thing we've done recently are new hires. We have gone to a what we call curbside service where we bring uh, our new hires in and rather than sending them through the standard class, uh, you know, we make sure they've completed all of their information electronically, meet them at the curb, give them their badges. They present to us their ID identification, proving their eligibility to work in the U.S. And in turn, we'll send them out to their supervisors and departments and and therefore, we're keeping that social distancing going from that standpoint. Does that mean um, orientation is still just going forward and doing everything that you all can as far as, um, you know, electronically having people review policies and maybe watching some videos and things like that? Yes, everything we used to do, we are doing electronically now. You know, they are able to provide electronic signatures showing that they have uh, read and understand policy. And, and then when they get here, that six-hour day uh, that they spend with HR has gone from that to about a 15-minute meeting at the curb. How else have you all still managed to complete and reach goals as a department? We have gone to kind of staggered days in the office. Uh, all of our employees have the capability of, of performing the clerical and technical parts of their job from home. Uh, that way we're not all in the office together. People tend to, to gather a little bit when they are all in the office together. And uh, With our staff, we know what we're doing as a group of people. Uh, where our shortcomings may be, and uh, we're able to fix those things pretty efficiently and effectively. Casinos present a pretty unique challenge as far as an enterprise to try to reopen. What are some of those challenges that you all have been preparing for and trying to make sure everybody stays safe? We have... Uh, you know, gone to ensuring that everyone that comes in the casino can only enter if they wear masks. Uh, and then we make a strong recommendation that they do wear masks. We make sure that we've got enough staff on hand that when one person leaves a slot machine, that we've got another person there that's, you know, ready to clean. And, and then, you know, we've actually changed the hours of our casino to where we're closing I believe one of the casinos eight hours a night, the other one about four hours a night to where we do deep cleaning uh, at that point in time to, you know, ensure their safety as well. How has it been having, <clears throat> you know, basically a healthcare system, you know, there and ready and willing to answer any sort of questions that you all have? Has that been another uh, level of, of comfort for HR? Has that been, you know, you said you utilized it, but has that just been pretty much indispensable for you all? It, it has been very indispensable in for us. Uh, we talk daily, either you know, in person, you know, electronically or, you know, through text or, or emails. They keep us up to date with 
you know, the various things that they're getting in from uh, the national level, state level, local level, together with all of those sources, we think we're able to do what we need to do to to stay healthy as far as our employees are concerned and, you know, to ease their mind. I think that's a very unique position <clears throat> that the tribe has is to have things like the enterprises, like a casino, but then on the other hand, you do have the healthcare system too, and where those are able to work so closely together, where in a lot of situations that obviously is not the case. I think we utilize each other to the fullest. You know, COVID-19 has presented some new challenges to us, but um, with the expert advice we're able to give one another, I think we're keeping our heads above water how do you feel uh, that CPN has been ahead of uh, preparing for the virus as opposed to responding to it? And how do you feel that HR has been a part of that? When we first learned about the virus, uh, we, were, we were at the table and we've been at the table throughout the process. Uh, they've asked for our feedback. They used our feedback on what policy should look like you know, what we should be doing is allowing, and allowing, allowing people to uh, telework and, you know, things along that line. Um, we've played a, a, a role, a huge role in, in where we are right now. And, you know, that's one thing that I can appreciate working for our, our administration. They, they include everybody, they get everybody's feedback and, um, everybody's feedback is important to them. Why do you feel that's been so important for HR to be included from the very beginning? We are the people that, that when a person's hired at CPM, we always like to say that we're the first one seen. So I think we're recognizable faces. Uh, we want to be that calming influence with our staff. Um, when situations such as these arise and, you know, a lot of people at other employers look at HR as that, that arm that's going to do harm to you. But we want to be known as that arm that's going to be here to, to help you and not bring harm. And, and um, just, just, just be when the storm's brewing, we want to be that calming influence in everybody's life. Things have been reopening over the last couple, two, three weeks. Um, what kind of preparation did HR make for actually really taking that big step to reopen things like the casinos and um, sort of extending some of those hours for other enterprises? A ton of meetings, uh, making sure all directors uh, were aware of of what our role would be. I mean, helping them to establish numbers of how many people they could bring back at the initial point of reopening and how we're going to handle uh, as business grows, bringing people back. Uh, lots of letters to staff, keeping them informed as to where we were and in the stages we were in. Uh, basically reassuring everybody that you know, even though we we're fighting through this crisis, we're doing everything to get you put back in, in full-scale employment and off of public roles and 
meaning public assistance. You, you name it, uh, HR probably does it. What do you feel like some of those things are that you all do that maybe people wouldn't normally think of that HR does, especially through a time like this? Oh, wow. I mean, we do everything. Uh, you know, some of our people need need help. They've been locked in a house for um, a couple of months and, you know, looking at four walls or, you know, not having anyone to talk to or, or so we're that arm they can call or, or we can find them assistance if it gets to a point to where we think they may need professional help. We are in the process of... Uh, training every employee with the nation on COVID-19 and what CDC guidelines are, what state guidelines are, what CPN's guidelines are, as far as what you need to do in order to continue to be successful and, and stay healthy through this battle. So um, again, just uh, anything that we're asked to do by administration, we're going to do it and, and uh I don't think we've seen all of what we're going to have to do between now and the end of COVID-19. From a human resources perspective, then talking a little bit about the future. Yeah. How do you feel like the next few months are looking for the tribe? We're going to keep preaching to our staff, do the right things to keep yourself healthy, to keep those around you healthy. If we can avoid a nationwide or worldwide second wave of COVID-19, uh, I think we're going to be bouncing back just as strong as we were prior to going out. For more information about jobs with CPN, visit firelakejobs.com. It's time for learning language when CPN Language Department Director Justin Neely teaches vocabulary, songs, stories, and more. This vocabulary lesson includes words for all kinds of insects and bugs we see in the summertime. Bojo jayak zagnanibi dejnaka zagnanibi nishnabe noswin nishnabenda bodewad minda shishibaniak nedebendagus jujak ndodem Justin Neely chimokman noswin my name is Justin Neely. I'm the language director for the tribe. And today we thought we'd do some insect terms, some uh, good words for summertime. Amo, bee, amo, zazbakwadoket amo, honeybee, zazbakwadoket amo, wanganos, ant, wanganos, guacquade, grasshopper, guacquade, Bochquanshi, dragonfly, Bochquanshi, Jigskot Mosi, cricket, Jigskot Mosi, Mamage, butterfly, Mamage, Quemindoshe, ladybug, Quemindoshe, Oje, fly, Oje, Mindoshe, insect, Mindoshe, Mose, worm, Mose, Skame, mosquito, skame. Wawatesi, firefly, wawatesi. Wemkoyane, caterpillar, wemkoyane. Espike, spider, espike. Wejigawet espike, black widow spider. 
was Jigawet SPK, SPK Wabuk, Spiderweb, SPK Wabuk, Azawe, Azawe, Locust, Azawe. Okay, and those are a few uh, few summer words for you, a few insect words. Enjoy. Ahau, bamamina. For more information and opportunities with language, including self-paced classes, visit cpn.news backslash language. You can find an online dictionary at potawatomidictionary.com, as well as videos on YouTube. There are also Potawatomi courses on the language learning app, Memorize. Hanukkah Podcast is produced and brought to you by Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Public Information Department. Our director is Jennifer Bell. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find what you listen to. We're also on Facebook at Citizen Potawatomi Nation and on Twitter at C underscore P underscore N. Visit us on the web and find digital editions of the tribal newspaper at Potawatomi.org. That's P-O-T-A-W-A-T-O-M-I dot org. Until next time, I'm Paige Willett. Miigwech nikanek, bamamina. Thank you, friends. See you later.